that if you're not into war, or battle, or bloodshed, then you might not find this to be a real great chapter here, one of your favorites. Um, but if you are, yeah, David won some battles. He fought some battles, and he won some battles. And 2 Samuel chapter 8 gives you kind of a, a rundown of that. We had a chapter like this earlier in 2 Samuel. I think it was chapter 4. I wrote it down somewhere in my notes, um, but I can't remember where. And I'm not looking right now. Uh, but uh, it was earlier, chapter 4, chapter 5. Um, a similar thing. I'll explain it to you. Uh, but there are some more to come as well. But let's look at 2 Samuel chapter 8. Would you stand with me? Uh, the sermon this morning is not without a fight. Not without a fight. You'll understand uh, if you stay awake till the end of the sermon, you're likely to understand. Maybe you won't. You know, sometimes we overestimate our powers of communication. I will say that. Uh, but the goal is that you'll understand the title by the time we're finished. Not without a fight. Let's begin in verse 1, 2 Samuel chapter 8. These are the words of God. And after this, it came to pass that David smote the Philistines and subdued them. And David took Methig and Amma out of the hand of the Philistines. And he smote Moab and measured them with a line, casting them down to the ground. Even with two lines measured he to put to death, and with one full line to keep alive. And so the Moabites became David's servants and brought gifts. David smote also Hadadezer, the son of Rehob, king of Zobah, as he went to recover his border at the river Euphrates. And David took from him a thousand chariots and seven hundred horsemen and twenty thousand footmen. And David hewed all the chariot horses, but reserved them for an hundred chariots. And when the Syrians of Damascus came to succor Hadadezer, king of Zobah, David slew of the Syrians two and twenty thousand men. Then David put garrisons in Syria of Damascus, and the Syrians became servants to David and brought gifts. And the Lord preserved David whithersoever he went. And David took the shields of gold that were on the servants of Hadadezer, and brought them to Jerusalem, and from Beta, and from Barathai, cities of Hadadezer, King David took exceeding much brass. When Toy, king of Hamath, heard that David had smitten all the host of Hadadezer, then Toy sent Joram, his son, unto King David to salute him and to bless him, because he had fought against Hadadezer and smitten him. For Hadadezer had wars with and Joram brought with him vessels of silver and vessels of gold and vessels of brass, which also King David did dedicate unto the Lord with the silver and gold that he had dedicated of all nations which he subdued, of Syria and of Moab and of the children of Ammon and of the Philistines and of Amalek and of the spoil of Hadadezer, son of Rehob, king of Zobah. And David gave him a name when he returned from smiting of the Syrians in the Valley of Salt, being 18,000 men. <clears throat> Gracious Lord, as we open the word together, I pray that we would be thankful for your word. Thank you, thank, thank you, Lord, for including details such as we find in this chapter. And Lord, this is part of scripture, and so we believe by faith that this is profitable to us. Now, Lord, it, it can be profitable to us 
by merely reading it. There's much profit in the reading of it. But we also have found that it's much more profitable when we open it up and expound it, especially when we apply it faithfully to our lives. And so we ask, Lord, that you would help us, that first of all, the preaching would be faithful to what your word says, and that the application would fit with what your word says as well. And then, Lord, as you answer that prayer, I pray that we would all receive the word with a ready mind, and that we would be delighted to change what needs to change in our lives so that we're more in line with what your word says, and that you would be recreating, remaking us into the image of Christ through the word that's preached in this service. We ask that you do these things for Christ's sake. It's in his name that we ask for. You can be seated. <clears throat> Pardon me. Jesus told the story of a rich young ruler who came to him and asked a question. The question was, good master, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? Jesus answered first by correcting the young man's notions of goodness. <clears throat> He rehearsed the requirements of the law to the young man. And the young man replied, Master, all these have I observed from my youth. The Bible tells us that when the young man answered this way, that Jesus, beholding him, loved him and said unto him, One thing thou lackest, go thy way, Sell whatsoever thou hast, and give to the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven, and come, take up the cross, and follow me. The young man did not fall on his knees before Jesus Christ, or gladly give up the world in order to follow him. Instead, the Bible says that he was sad at that saying, and went away grieved, for he had great possessions. Isn't that the way it goes? No. Because first of all, if you're to come to Jesus Christ, he's going to put his finger not on that part of your life that you wish you could get rid of, but on that part of your life that you value and treasure that part of your life that you would hold on to even if it meant you could not have Christ. See, in that moment, Jesus, John chapter 2 tells us that he knew also Jesus and things that ever I did. This actually told her was that you don't have a husband. You've had four or five husbands and the man you're with right now is not your husband. And in doing so, Jesus touched on, again, that part of her that was central to her life and to the dysfunction, the chaos of her life. And now with this rich young ruler, Jesus once again puts his finger on that one point. And the man said, remember, 
He said, all these things have I kept from my youth up. Jesus had quoted the commandments to them. And Jesus did not dispute with them about that. He didn't say, uh-uh, 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 you haven't done that. You didn't do that. Instead, Jesus put his finger on the point of resistance, the point of rebellion, if you will, because here was a young man who had diligently, scrupulously kept the law, but he had one thing, one thing that he was not willing to give up for Christ's sake. And Jesus pointed at that. And the young man walked away sad because he had much possession. For some, the very poor, might say, I would gladly give up everything I have to follow Christ. Right? But if you have a massive house and many cars and much wealth, and Jesus says, sell it all and give it to the poor and take up your cross and follow me. Well, that's very different, right? But that's what Jesus said to that young man. What Jesus is saying to you is probably different than what he's saying to me, but the one thing for sure is that when you come to Christ, the thing that he will call for is the thing that stands between you and him. That's it. I hope I'm not confusing you in what I'm saying right there. I, I give this illustration, I've given it a number of times, but there was a young lady who came to me for a while uh, for counseling, and she had, she cut herself, she had tried to kill herself, she was very unhappy. She said to me repeatedly, I hate my life, she said, I hate my life. She cut herself because she said, I deserve it. All right, it's hard to maybe grasp that mindset unless you yourself have done that kind of thing. I preached the gospel to her many times over, preached the gospel to her, called her to repentance, showed her that that life you hate, God will take and give in its place a life that you will love. She said this to me. This is what she said multiple times. She said it. Will I have to change my life? I said, well, yes, of course. But you hate your life. Yeah, but I don't want to change it. That's what she said. Over and over until finally she had rejected Christ. You might say, well, how foolish. But this is the point that I want to illustrate in this message. Jesus introduced a hard truth, but one that is inescapable in the Word of God. Most sinners will never surrender to Jesus Christ. Most will not. They will hate their sin. You know, it's one of those things. They, they hate it, and they can't stop. They love it. But they hate it. They love it. They will never surrender. If they will be saved, they must be conquered, subdued, overcome, sometimes in bloody battle. 
There's a sense in which 2 Samuel chapter 8 illustrates what I'm saying. But like I said, you're gonna hang, you're gonna have to hang with me on this. Sometimes I make the point and then right away, and then I elaborate on it. So you can safely, you know, fall asleep 10 minutes into the sermon. But today, not so. Alright? I gotta do this, right? Because it grieves me to see you sleeping. Because I'm standing up here, I want to take a nap too. Alright? <laughs> it's not fair. Because I can't do it while I'm up here. Well, I mean, but anyway, hang with me on this. Hopefully, we'll show you what I mean from 2 Samuel 8. God's kingdom will not be established without a bloody fight. A bloody, bloody fight. Our text gives the history of David's long fight to secure a place for Israel. We can expect similar battles in the fight, in our fight for dominion. I want to divide the message by considering first the reality of David's fight against Israel's enemies. And then I want to consider two spiritual lessons that we might learn from this passage. So first of all, David's fight. All right, so let's look at that. This is what the passage is about. This is the second, in fact, of these passages, as I said already, that gives a short overview of David's war to secure a place for Israel. All right, that's, what, that's what's happening. God has promised, remember, in the last chapter, chapter 7, David wanted to build a house for God's name. God said, I will build you a house. He said, I will give a secure place to my people. Before God would take rest for himself, he intended to give rest to his people. So he's, this is what he raised David up to do, to fight the Lord's battles, to fight and defeat the Philistines and all the Lord's enemies, all the enemies of the people of God. And in this chapter, we have David fighting against all of the classic enemies. Okay, so I'm a Washington Redskins fan, all right? There's a little bit, I know that that's not actually a team anymore. The Washington, I don't know what they are, commanders. Uh, all right, but if you are a Redskins fan, then you, Brother James, despise the Dallas Cowgirls. <laughs> yeah. The Philadelphia Eagles. It goes back over the years. Washington Hey, no back talk. <laughs> Philadelphia Eagles, you know, and the New York Giants. Those are those are your you know, you play other teams, but those are the enemies. And and here in this chapter, you've got the Philistines, you've got the Moabites, you've got the Ammonites, you've got the Edomites. The classic enemies, right? And David defeats them. The Israel has been taking it from these countries for years. You go back to the book of Judges and you see the way the Moabites and the Ammonites and the Philistines were rising up and trampling on Israel over and over. And you, you're thinking, you know, we, we have the benefit of having the entirety of Scripture in front of us. So so we're thinking, yeah, but your day is coming, right? Because King David, King David is going to come up and he is going to trounce 
Israel's enemies. And that's what this is about. <clears throat> in the fifth chapter, that's the chapter I was talking about before, David and his men conquered Jerusalem, and in a series of battles, they defeated the Philistines. So now the Philistines are on their way out. I'll show you, show you more about that in a few moments. <clears throat> Our text describes the end of the Philistines as a serious threat to Israel, in fact. Okay, so not in a few moments. I'll tell you now. All right, right now, this is, in fact, this chapter is the last time. Now, now understand that um, these events are recorded again in the books of the Kings and then again in the books of the Chronicles. So other than the retelling of this part of Israel's history, the Philistines never come up as a serious, significant threat against Israel again until the days of Hezekiah, a couple hundred years. So David gave them a couple hundred years hurt here. And they don't emerge from David, from the dust of David, for many years to come. David crushed them, eliminated them. They've been Israel's biggest threat, and David demolished them. So this is the second list of conquests, and the narrator isn't concerned here with giving us a chronological order of these. In fact, we have good reason to think that these battles are not in chronological order. For instance, the central enemy that is described here in this chapter comes up again in chapter 10, and we get more detail about the battle against him. So we would assume that the events in chapter 10 happen before chapter 8, chapter 8 is like the table of contents. It's, it's like the list of all the battles that David fought. <clears throat> so for now, the conquest is described in geographical order, not in chronological order. Beginning with the most famous of Israel's enemies, the Philistines in the west. And then we move east to the Moabites and the Ammonites, then north to Hadadezer, and finally south to Edom. And even before this, the narrator takes us in chapter 5 to see, and, and this is kind of set up this way, all right? So remember that uh, we, we've tried to pay attention not only to what is said, but how it is said, how the narrator is telling us these stories. So the narrator starts in chapter 5 by describing uh, David conquering Jerusalem, establishing it as the capital of Israel. In chapter 6, then, David brings the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. So, so he establishes Jerusalem as the capital, and then he puts the Ark of the Covenant, which was the, the physical presence of God with Israel at that time. And David puts it in Jerusalem. So he makes central to the nation of Israel, he makes the presence of God at the heart of the nation. He puts it there. And then this chapter kind of gives you the idea that from that central, like he conquers, subdues Jerusalem, brings the Ark of the Covenant there, and then spreads his dominion throughout the, throughout the nation. 
east, west, east, north, south. He spreads his dominion by conquering Israel's enemies. <clears throat> Securing a place for Israel required many bloody battles. And this list of victories would definitely have involved, I mean, it's not, it's not a secret here, that it involved fierce fighting and much bloodshed. When Israel fought the Philistines, the Bible tells us that they smote them and subdued them. By the way, uh, if this chapter has a key word, it is that word smote. The word is used in each of the first three verses, and the Hebrew word that's rendered smote in this chapter uh, also appears in verse 5 as slew. It's the same idea. He smote them, smote them to death, you can say. He slew them, smote them and slew them. And we see it in a different form in verses 9 and 10 and verse 13. Now, other words revolve around this theme, but fit with the theme that are repeated in this chapter as well, that show Israel's total domination over their enemies under David's leadership. I noticed in verse 1, the word subdued, uh, the word took repeated four times in verse 1, verse 4, verse 7, and verse 8. So David is smiting, he's smacking, he's taking... He's subduing, he's conquering, he is overcoming. That's what he is doing in this chapter. And the point is to emphasize the way David brought the enemy to their knees so that he could defend his people against them. That was his calling as a king. His calling as a king was not to make his life cushy and comfortable and to live in luxury and command all the people and have his big palace and his nice life. His calling as a king was to conquer and subdue Israel's enemies so that Israel could live in luxury and live comfortably and not worry about their enemies. And you remember, of course, the way the Moabites in the time of the judges would come in, the Midianites, remember them? They would come in and Israel would be uh, harvesting uh, right at the time of the harvest and right then like a pack of coyotes the, the Midianites would show up and would steal their harvest from them and Israel would then be worried about starving to death and so David's job is to secure the place for Israel to secure Israel in that part of the world so that's what he is doing in <clears throat> from the Philistines David took Metheg Emma out of their hands. Now, Sumura, in his commentary, suggested this might have been a type of lamb, kind of like we would say, so, so you could say in verse 8, where David took the Metheg Amma out of the hand of the Philistines. It was similar to the way we might say he took the forest out of their hands, or he took the, the, the fields, uh, or he took the heartland out of them. And I think, actually, that probably is right, the heartland that he took from the Philistines. The parallel account in 1 Chronicles chapter 18, we're told that David took Gath and her towns out of the hands of the Philistines. So, so we would assume that that region, Gath with all her suburbs, 
is what David took at the heart of the land of the Philistines. When Israel fought the Moabites, he captured their troops, and then he set them in three lines. And, and, and this is going to trouble us in this kinder, gentler era. But he set all the um, Moabites in three lines. All right. Now, by the way, don't forget that David's great grandmother was a Moabite, right? A Moabitess. Don't forget that. Don't forget that when Saul was chasing David all around the countryside, that David took his family to the king of Moab, who he had a relationship with, probably through that family connection, took his father and their household to the king of Moab for, to, uh, for safety, uh, for a place where they could be safe from King Saul. Don't forget that. But David took those Moabites and he lined them up in three lines and they cast lots for those three lines. They threw lot, they drew straws, and the short straw won. I mean lived. Didn't run. Went lived. The other two straws died. You got the long straw. You didn't just lose. You died. And they went through and killed the two lines and kept one line alive, and that line was a tribute to David 